French producer whose name I can't even speak because I'm so splenetic with rage about it. Um, but the film got made in spite of what she didn't do. But if you'll appreciate Andrew, we got to Swaziland and we had 110 cast and crew three days before we were due to start shooting. And I was red carpeted by the Swazi minister of, in, in a government department saying, you have no right to film in the country. You're illegally here. You don't have police certificates or medical clearances. So you all have to leave. So I then begged an audience with the king which you can do in Swaziland. And uh, he then granted us clemency to, to allow us to start shooting whilst these things were processed. But I don't know if you can imagine arriving at the 120 foreign nationals at Sydney Airport and saying, well, we're going to be shooting in uh, Bondi Beach for seven weeks, but we've got no papers. I don't think you'd get, you know, two yeah. steps ahead of yourself. So Very few films where you have to see clemency from the king before you can even start. No. As the tide of empire was running out in this community that you grew up in, how did, how did that slight sense of panic or displacement express itself? Well, they, the expats put on an amateur production of a play to try and impress Princess Margaret, who was coming out for independence in the, in the story. So that was going on the one side. And what happened domestically for me, which is what I've written about, is that at the very moment when independence was coming, and so it essentially meant because my father was a director of education for the country under the English administration at that point, um, my mother very publicly cuckolded at him, which is the opening scene of the film, because I woke up when I was 10 years old and inadvertently saw her bonking my father's best friend on the front seat of the car, which I can laugh about now because I'm mentally, you know, fixed up. Um, what did that, that do to your world at that time? I think what it did is, is it was the moment I started keeping a diary, and I've kept a diary ever since, um, because it was such a poisonous secret to have to deal with as a child um, that I didn't have, I couldn't tell my parents about it, obviously. I couldn't tell my friends. Um, and so in writing a diary, it was a way of trying to deal with the world. And so I think it, it started, it, it really effectively divided my view of things that I felt like it was an insider and an outsider at the same time. And that has sort of basically persisted, and especially since I went to live in England. So it gives you the sort of third eye on things, I think. Um, and I think helps you in the way that you write or observe things. You just become acutely aware of that. And you can write and observe yourself as well, as a diarist. Yeah, well, you have to be brutally honest about it. If, you, if you're being as honest as you libelly are about working with other people, some of whom end up being famous, then, you know, by the same token, I think you've got to be prepared to, you know, warts and all about yourself. So I think that, you know, to answer your question seriously, that because my father's career was sort of cut off by independence coming when he was in, mid, in his mid-40s and he was cuckolded by my mother, um, he then plunged into a kind of very violent alcoholism by night and Mr. Charm by day and remarried an air hostess that he'd known for six weeks. So when I came back from boarding school, uh, I said, you know, he said, I said, you know, you look a bit different. And he said, yeah, I've got remarried. I said, well, to who? You know, to somebody that I thought we knew in common. He said, oh, this, this woman. I said, well, how long have you known? He said, six weeks. So she suddenly had a new mother. Yeah, but she turned out to be a good egg. So, you know, it worked out well. <laughs> to escape uh, the the stresses of your childhood and the dislocated nature of it, you uh, had a puppet show, a whole puppet theatre. Yeah. Uh, what role did that play in your life? Well, I started with a shoebox theatre and, you know, made things on lollipop sticks with cut-out figures and then went to glove puppets and string puppets and stuff and was mercilessly teased by people for playing with dolls until they found out how much money I earned from doing these shows in my parents' garage. <laughs> so, you know, paid for my record and book collection when, you know, records were still a currency at that time. And I think that what it provided very clearly was 
uh, a parallel escape from what was actually going on in my domestic situation. So becoming an actor and escaping into that was um, a way out, really. And I think that you know, being in plays and doing stuff at school like that and wanting to go to drama school, I think my parents hoped that it would be like pimples. It would be a phase that I would go through and, you know, um, session with Raquel Welsh in 1,000 years BC. It would be something that would just pass by. Um, but, you know, it's stuck and I've ended up having my career out of that. Well, it wasn't just Raquel Welsh. You were starstruck with Barbara Streisand. You wrote to her when you were 14. I was indeed. You've done your research. And I know that you were born on the 4th of May, 1960. A day before me in 1957. <laughs> I googled you. That's a little bit weird, uh, Richard. <laughs> no, but to come back to your serious question. Because Barbara was saying to me about you. That Absolutely. <laughs> As you do. Yes. So no, you wrote so to Barbara. I wrote to her, yeah, and when I finally met her, um, I was doing this Robert Altman film called The Play in Los Angeles, and I went into a, um, there was a party, and every other person was Al Pacino.